to help people that are unfunded, those many times do have that as a qualifier that it has to be sole source nutrition. But I think there's some discrepancy that as long as it's medically necessary to maintain that weight and strength, commensurate with the patient's overall health status, then we're not really bound to that in that population, although some third-party payers would hold you to that. Great. So I'm wondering, based on what you just said, it seems like Medicare is the driver in terms of coverage. So can you share with us a little bit about what other insurers do? We always hear that the insurers tend to follow what Medicare and Medicaid are doing. And how does that work in the enteral and parenteral world? Well, in the state of Texas, where I reside, Medicaid for adults follows Medicare guidelines most definitely. So if you don't qualify under the Medicare guidelines, then Medicaid also will not find that you have medical necessity for enteral or parental nutrition. But third-party payers, many times major insurers, even Blue Cross Blue Shield, there are several that say, we weren't paying for your food before you needed a tube feeding, we're not going to pay for your food afterwards. So they may pay for your supplies, your pump rental, and so forth, but the expense for formula is up to the family and the patient. So sometimes that is no small amount of money, you know, depending on how specialized the formula is and how much they are able to get it, get the formula provided for. So that's another another thing that we that we need to consider is having the patient on the least restrictive diet, whether by tube feeding and then choosing the formula that is the most cost effective to provide the result that you're looking for. One of the things on my decision tree too, I didn't even include the hepatic formulas because I don't think the evidence base is is so strong for that, but I didn't even include that as far as one of the one of the potential items because the reimbursement is so upside down when you've paid for the amount that a home infusion company or DME provider is reimbursed. I don't think anyone is really looking to provide hepatic specialty formulas to a Medicare patient based on that type of reimbursement. Right, and I'm wondering, going back to what you previously said about giving our patients the best that they need based on their clinical status, how did the insurance companies look at, okay, we started this person on the, the most appropriate but the most economical formula, and clearly they're not tolerating it, or we need to go to something a little bit more concentrated, like going from a 1.2 to 1.5 ml calorie solution. How do insurance companies look at that when a person is losing weight and deteriorating? The calories actually don't impact the insurance company so much as far as the caloric density of a product since the B codes are paid per 100 calories, so it doesn't matter how many come in a can. The reimbursement is on a per 100 calorie basis, but I do find that one of my soapboxes is looking at just because someone has diabetes does not portend that a diabetic-specific formula is the best choice for them. For one thing, many of those patients have gastroparesis, 
and all of the diabetic-specific formulas that originate in the United States have between 45 and 49 percent of the calories from fat. So if you have gastroparesis, of course, a high-fat diet like that is not in your plan. So, you know, trialing them on a high-fiber standard formula is probably a really good idea, and they may have better gastric emptying and not feel like they've just eaten three meals for Thanksgiving at all grandparents, you know, so they're so full and they never empty. And I also am excited about the new critical care medicine guidelines for not checking the gastric residuals, but if you've got a patient with this kind of formula, just their intolerance may tell you that there's a problem with that gastric emptying just by their symptoms and not feeling well. Yeah, I agree. I find those formulas are a challenge in getting patients to tolerate them, and as well as the high-fiber formulas, sometimes there's just too much fiber in them for some patients at home who already have early satiety or problems right. with gastric motility. I mean, it's just it doesn't work well. So I have a lot of patients sometimes asking me, or by the time I see them, they've already instituted this plan, is coming up with home blenderized feedings. What do you think about that in this whole scheme of care with the home patient? And what about if patients have to buy their own formula, do we think it's a cheaper way to go? Well, it's not necessarily cheaper, but it's closer to the way I eat as far as, you know, more variety in the diet. And I have patients that are very happy blenderizing their own feedings. You do have to make sure that it's a clean home setting and that food safety is taught more vigorously than, you know, wiping down the cans and and making sure that an enrol patient is instructed generally. But some patients are having great success with home blended formulas and then also enter into the market the blenderized food products, not just the ones that have been commercially available in a can, but they're not complete feedings and they don't say that they are. There's need for additional sodium in the diet. They're they're very low sodium and some additional minerals are needed to make those complete. But, But I think for patients and consumers that are interested in putting together their own tube feeding, I think you can do that safely, where for a time period, I think think manufacturers of nutrition products had the dietitian thinking that if it didn't say 100% of everything as you read down the can in four cans or so, then that wasn't going to be good enough for your patient. But in reality, we eat a variety and, you know, I may not have gotten 100% yesterday, but today... I'm going to be rounding out my diet in a, you know, in general that I will be meeting my needs and I'm very well nourished. Right. I think that's a really good point because I think a lot of clinicians who don't work with home patients just feel like you need to be on the system where you have the nutrition come in the can, you know exactly what's in the can, and they're really hesitant to let patients try to blenderize their own diets which I find in long-term patients, they just feel like that they're getting better nutrition that way. I'm wondering, does the presence of malnutrition play a role in maintaining insurance coverage when a patient is able to take a small amount of oral nutrition but is clearly unable to maintain or improve their nutritional status without the specialized nutrition support? How does that work? I want to go back and say 
regarding the blenderized feedings too, that it's not an all or none proposition. It could be that you would want to utilize one feeding a day that was blenderized from real, real foods and incorporate that in the mix of things. Some families are finding that they're happy doing that, but not blending at every meal. As far as malnutrition, where a patient is going to decline if they don't have a certain level of specialized nutrition support, of course, you still have to to meet that minimum 750 calories or have a really good reason why that's not coming into play for Medicare. Now, if you have a lady, a, a small lady that, you know, that would gain weight on 1,000 calories, then 750 is, you know, is a huge percent of her caloric needs. But I do think you do have to have a certain level of needs for it to be considered medically necessary. And the malnutrition part of it, I think, is... Uh, hopefully we'll we'll be coming we'll be I'm going to start that over in the future with the focus on malnutrition and everything that Aspen is doing to highlight malnutrition of late hopefully third party payers will start taking notice of how malnutrition impacts the bottom line and how much how much more costly it is to do preventive nutrition, for example, the products that are promoted for enhanced recovery after surgery, the the numbers are pretty significant and impressive as far as decreasing the risk of anastomotic leaks, decreasing hospital stays, decreasing incidence of hospital-acquired pneumonias, and so forth. So I think as they start to look at the numbers of fewer days in the ICU and and I say prehab beats rehab. If you can prehab before surgery, then that's really a good idea if it's going to keep you from from being in the hospital longer. And so I think for those consumers that are able to afford that on their own, it's a good idea. But shouldn't insurance um, payers also realize the success that could come with prospectively nourishing patients rather than waiting till they become malnourished. It's the same thing as you can't get an, a low air loss mattress until you've got some decubitus. Well, you know, some people you just know they're going to have decubitus because of disease or their protein levels and so forth. So it would be a good idea to prevent it. So a little more in the way of preventive care, if we could follow and do whatever lobbies the dentists have been able to so successfully have every six months you get your teeth cleaned. Well, how about every six months you check up on your nutrition and see if you're in a good preventive state of nutrition care? That would be a great idea. And in the home setting, I think it would be great if home patients, especially the enteral patients, got follow-up every six months because sometimes exactly. they find that they don't get any follow-up. So speaking of malnutrition and the fact that you brought up the malnutrition diagnostic framework that Aspen and the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics have been promoting to standardize how we detect malnutrition in the clinical setting, do you find that home care companies or insurance companies are looking at those criteria to assess or detect the presence of malnutrition in home care patients? I think that... There are segments 
of patients that are followed in that way, but a lot of home care companies that are providing nutrition may not even have a dietitian on the team, so they are looking for the physician and the referral source to they are completely in charge of monitoring those indices. They're merely in a dispensing mode and not in a monitoring mode in in many instances, although, of course, as you said, it would be to be proactively monitoring for for signs of malnutrition and assessing improvement and showing the usefulness and, and the benefits of providing good nutrition in the home patient, I think, is definitely where we should be going. So in that situation, some of the home care companies don't have a dietitian involved in the care. Do they monitor nutritional status? Who comes up with a nutrition prescription for those patients? Well, my co-author on this article, Carol McGinnis, works with her patients very closely and she is a big part of that equation in her area. So it could be someone else that is a nutrition support professional other than a dietitian, but more typically in the home setting, I'm used to it being a dietitian. Right, right. And Carol's really active in Aspen, so she has a really good knowledge base as well as I think some other home care companies, but I think a lot of times too, patients, there's just nobody there with that knowledge base to determine how much that person really needs and on the back end even follow up to see how the things are going with the support. Exactly. Okay, so one last question. Given the ongoing challenges in our health care due to the Affordable Care Act, which has resulted in lots of change, as you mentioned in the article, patients being discharged from the hospital a lot earlier, do you think we're making any progress in improving the quality care and reimbursement picture for the consumers who are receiving home specialized nutrition support? I don't think we are yet, and that was one of the indications for this article was that nutrition support practitioners need to act as change agents and help with anything legislative-wise through Aspen and the Academy and our professional organizations that will push through more current, more evidence-based practice and also looking at, at how much more effective it is to provide these therapies in the home rather than having to send someone to a skilled nursing facility, a long-term acute care facility, the SNFs and the LTACs and the acute rehab units and those alternate placements when a patient is needing to be discharged and perhaps they could go to the home if you could wrangle them into the category of the 90 days and you could meet those criteria, but would be definitely much less expensive if it were appropriate to do a home discharge. I think there's a lot more that, that needs to happen to make those types of those types of scenarios more workable for the patient so that they could go home if that were an appropriate discharge. Right, and I think all clinicians, in addition to change agents, also are coordinators of care. And so clinicians who work in the hospital or medical facility settings really should be aware of what's going on in the home care or lack of what's going on in the home care setting so that they can kind of help coordinate care and optimize outcomes for these patients. Thank you so much for a great article. I think you 
hit the nail on the head as far as identifying the challenges that come up in home care. In my experience, every time I go to the literature looking for more information about what are the most common problems that arise, there is like nothing. There's so little research in this area. And, and I think this is a call to action also for all the Aspen members that we all need to kind of be collecting data in this area. And you kind of mentioned that in your article too. Yes, thank you so much for the opportunity to share this today and everyone read the article when it comes out. Thank you.